This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. This week, activist burnout. We all seem to be feeling some degree of it right now. And for very understandable reasons, we are facing so many urgent challenges and crises across simultaneous fronts, from the climate crisis to the pandemic, the fight for voting rights, racial equity, not to mention reproductive rights are under a frightening new assault. We know that we want to re-energize and re-engage, but we may not be sure how. So for this town hall, we have assembled a panel of experts to offer perspective and guidance on how to understand your burnout and how to find your way back. That is next. Let's turn to tonight's program, which is all about addressing issues of burnout and activism. To do this, we have an extraordinary panel with us. Jennifer Ferris Young is a leader with Indivisible Action, Tampa Bay, and is a clinical therapist specializing in trauma. She's a frequent guest of the Washington State Indivisible podcast, helping activists cope with overwhelm, grief, anger, and burnout. Paul Gorski is the founder of the Equity Literacy Institute and Ed Change. He has more than 20 years of experience helping educators, nonprofit workers, and others strengthen their equity efforts and has published more than, wait for it, 70 articles and has written, co-written, or co-edited 12 books on equity and is the co-author of Measuring Social Justice and Human Rights Activist Burnout. He holds a PhD in educational evaluation from the University of Virginia. Jaina Tavares is a higher education student affairs professional at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, where she works closely with college students within residence education. In addition to her full-time job, Jane is also a graduate student in the social justice education program and a research apprentice for the Center for Racial Justice and Youth Engaged Research. Her research primarily explores how issue of burnout cut across race and sexual orientation with a particular focus on activist burnout among college student activists. And Marceline DuBose holds an EDM in teaching and curriculum from Harvard University as a Rockefeller Brothers teaching fellow. Also a certified yoga instructor, Marceline incorporates historical and policy perspectives, systems change theory, adult learning theory, critical reflection, and key approaches from yoga philosophy as she works towards individual, organizational, and societal change. She's also the co-author of the book, No Stone Unturned, a guide to reducing burnout and increasing creativity and, and invigoration as core goals. And with that, I will turn things over to our moderator, Stephen Cox. Thank you, my friend, and welcome to everybody. We know that we have people all over the country with, uh, with us tonight. We're so glad that you were here. Listen, I'm just going to start by saying that when I posted up about this, the response was overwhelming. Um, I think we've really tapped into to something here. I've honestly never seen anything like it. People are feeling a range of things right now, uh, anger, despair, grief, overwhelm, and, and most certainly burnout. So we're going to give space tonight to address all of that and and ideally to find some tools and some mechanisms that are going to help us re-energize and to re-engage. Before we get started, uh, something very important that I want to take a moment to acknowledge, and that is first and foremost, Indivisible is largely a white organization. Uh, many of us are relatively new to activism, and w- while we very, very much strive to work as allies and advocates, and, and very much to listen and learn, we acknowledge and we honor that the experiences of burnout are they're very different for members of marginalized communities. And so before we start, I want to give everybody the opportunity to speak to this. Uh, so Marceline, let's start with you on this. How do we make space to honor everyone's experience of burnout here tonight? First of all, I want to just add to my bio a little bit, which is I come from um, a family of black educators. So my grandmother was an educator. 
both of my aunts were educators. I'm an educator. And my son, who is now 29, was also an educator. And within that context, um, education was always activism. Education was always um, working to create better systems um, and to change status quo. And so it's also inside of that context that I kind of bump against my own um, fatigue teachings. Like, how did my grandmother teach me to navigate this? How did my aunts teach me to navigate this? How do I teach my son to navigate it? And so one thing I want to, um, I guess, um, invite the room to think about is even the language um, compassion fatigue is a little bit privileged in and of itself, right? Like the idea that what we're doing is compassionate as opposed to what we're supposed to be doing or the right thing. Um, and compassion kind of places the, um, the, the work kind of, it idolizes our work and then places the fatigue kind of at the hands of people who were working on behalf. And so I want to invite us to think about that where um, racism fatigue, sexism fatigue, oppressive hierarchy fatigue, um, insatiable capitalism fatigue, um, efficiency and productivity fatigue, like let's name what's tiring us. Because I would guess most of us act, act, actually love being compassionate. What we don't like is swimming upstream from all these like multiple generations of isms that we're fighting against. Um, I just think we should lay the blame for the fatigue at the right feet. So that's one thing I, I thought about when we were thinking about compassion fatigue. Paul, would you like to dovetail on that? Uh, sure. I, I think that was a great, uh, I, I loved that way of framing it uh, that Marceline did. Uh, did there. I, I think it's also important just to think about, and, and you kind of mentioned this earlier, that uh, when we think about uh, burnout in particular, that it doesn't, uh, that it doesn't affect all people the same. So for instance, as a white person who has been doing different kinds of anti-racist work since I was a teenager, my whiteness still protects me from some of the sources of burnout that my colleagues of color experience, uh, you know, um, in, in, in their work. I think sometimes, especially organizations that are primarily white, sort of make the mistake of thinking that we're sort of all in this, that we're all sort of experiencing this in similar ways. Uh, and then, of course, some of my own research has actually shown that one of the biggest sources of burnout for racial justice activists of color are the attitudes and behaviors of white racial justice activists. And so, uh, you know, I think it's really important that we, that we look at this in sort of layered ways, especially if, you know, the audience is primarily people who uh, embody privileged uh, identities. Yeah, I would agree with that. And in fact, we have a number of questions uh, to, to follow up on everything that both you and Marceline uh, have have talked about. Jennifer, I'll, I'll turn to you. And um, it is kind of a, a strange space to, to navigate here, because I think while everybody's experience of burnout and grief and uh, everything that we're dealing with is legitimate in and of themselves, we do have to see it through the lens of racial equity, don't we? Most definitely. Yeah. I do want to add on um, to some things that Marceline said to look at this and maybe even the way Paul said it as another layer 
is another way to uh, name compassion fatigue is calling it, or what it is, is um, vicarious trauma. And so I think we have to add in that factor that some of these experiences um, are actually traumatizing and um, how we have to experience, and certainly those in the marginalized community have to experience the, the activism and the trauma that they experience, um, that it is a, a traumatic experience, something that is causing a traumatic reaction um, and harming you on that neurological level. So I think that's really kind of important. I, I do think from an equity standpoint, um, if we have to be able to see this for what it is and the ways that we, in our role in the community, that we can have the most impact uh, to be able to make the changes that we need to. I, I personally obviously like to speak to white women and, ensure, and encourage them uh, that it's time to take a seat and, um, and listen uh, to those that are impacted um, so that we are focused on the changes that need to be made, not just through our own lens, uh, but seeing it through, you know, uh, listening to others. Gina, here's the point where I bring you in, because I know that you have, the, the, this is such a focus of your, your work here. I'm, I'm acutely interested in what you have to say here. Yeah, so my research primarily focuses on um, college student activists who are specifically engaging in what is called identity-based activism. So Black students on campus who are specifically engaged in racial justice activism on campus, queer students who are engaging in LGBTQ activism on campus, um, because like some of the panelists have shared, um, our identities play a large role in the extent of the burnout we feel and how that burn, like what the sources of that burnout is. Um, and so I take a look specifically at activists who are engaging in work specifically tied to one or more of their marginalized identities because that burnout looks very different. Um, and what I found in my research is that students who are engaging in campus activism are, are experiencing burnout from one of two like main causes and a lot of times both. The first is the exhaustion of like being an activist, right? So the, the physical work and the labor that goes into activist engagement on campus is exhausting on top of being a student, on top of potentially working part-time or full-time job to um, be able to financially support themselves through school. Um, and right, a lot of that work, that activist work is often uncompensated, unrecognized and not valued, right? So in addition to the activist work that they're doing on campus, um, they're also doing internships, other things to like pad their resume because a lot of times this work isn't valued in their fields. Um, and on top of the like actual labor of engaging in activism, right, the stress and exhaustion of just existing as a marginalized person in oppressive institutions of higher education. So a lot of the students that I have shared or I've interviewed and spoken with talk about this exhaustion of just existing and the exhaustion of existing while also having to engage in this work in the first place um, because of the institutions that not only are they trying to just navigate and survive, but are also trying to make sure that new students who are coming in with those identities have a better experience than they did. Um, but it's a never ending cycle of exhaustion, but also feelings of obligation um, to do this work, because if not them, then who will? That is definitely a point that I want to follow up on in just a moment. And and actually, uh, for those who are joining us tonight, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't mind if you would just type out like maybe a one sentence definition of how you experience burnout, how you define burnout. And Kat, if you could just uh, curate uh, maybe like five or six that that you think are, are particularly pertinent, I would love to read that. Um, so 
you know, uh, Marceline, you brought something to my attention uh, that I know that we can all relate to, which is something called resistance fatigue. Um, we know that the opposition is becoming very empowered, very organized, very violent. Um, how do we navigate this right now? Yeah, so I've been actually spending probably the last um, year or so really thinking about resistance and how to parse it out and figure out different um, forms of resistance, locations of resistance, et cetera. But as you mentioned, it's becoming um, quite entitled and forceful lately. And as I've been doing my work and thinking about resistance, I think one of the, and there's a, there's a lot of um, pieces to how to navigate resistance, but an important piece I want to bring up in terms of fatigue today is knowing when to not engage with someone is a very important skill set. Um, knowing when someone is there to be a saboteur mm -hmm. with their resistance and not necessarily there with questions or confusion or lack of exposure, right? Because what I've found for activists is we don't know when to not pick, not fight the fight. And for people who are there to sabotage, if you choose to fight with them, they're actually getting their way because now you're pouring all your energy into this fight and they're distracting you and your colleagues and everyone else. So we're seeing this happen. I work primarily with schools at school board meetings, et cetera, and really developing your skill to redirect your focus away from resistors who don't have um, like the intention to work towards solutions with you. There are people who might not agree with what you feel and they might not be on the same page, but they want to work together. And then there are saboteurs. And so I've been working a lot with activists to know when to um, walk away, to shut it down and developing actual like languages and sentences that say, I'm not going to do this with you and I'm leaving and redirect your energy somewhere else because I've seen people just wearing themselves out. And this could be on social media. This could be in public meetings. This could be at your dinner table, completely wearing ourselves out with people who have no intention to actually um, join us in creating a better world, even if we have different ideas of what a better world is. Jennifer, I see you nodding your head, and I, I have a feeling I know what you're going to say because we've talked about this before. Uh, any comments on, on what Marceline just said? Well, what we briefly spoke about, and again, Marceline speaks to this, is you know, being in Florida, um, I think a lot of us feel like the Trump era is not over. Um, we are red, red, and more red. And so we are still really, really fighting those on the ground fights and they are getting more organized. I think the way Marceline was putting it as well is those that are quote unquote on our side and are activists who um, wanna fight the fight but don't know when to step back and listen, that is really the challenge as well because we have to stay focused on the task at hand and challenging those that are there to challenge us are, is not helpful. And those that are speaking up when they shouldn't be speaking up when we're supposed to be following a directive because that's the task at hand. I think those are really, really important skills for the activists among us in addition to how to face those who show up to be against us. I want to read some of the things that people are saying about burnout here. Uh, Shelley says, overwhelmed when terms to apathy, uh, fighting discouragement, unable to feel satisfaction from any action. We're going to get to that for sure. Hold that thought. 
uh, fighting for values and opposition cheats make me feel invisible, watching others drop out. As a senior citizen, I'm exhausted and frustrated about having to refight the same equity battles over and over that I've been fighting my entire life. We got a number of, uh, of, of notes uh, about that very thing. Uh, feelings of apathy, feelings of overwhelm. This is a perfect uh, segue to get into some of the many emotions that I know that people were feeling and, and would like to hear discussed. Um, Let's start with a biggie, and this is one that I grapple with, so I'm just gonna, I'm going to, to put this out in front because I know that this is this is very personal to me. Um, I'm angry, I, I, and I spend a lot of my time being very angry, uh, and there is a lot to be angry about. I wonder, uh, Marceline, do you have any thoughts, because I know that you do mindfulness, you do yoga, and obviously you have uh, training in, in, in so many different areas. How do we keep anger from turning inward and causing us harm? Um, I can only speak for, for myself and how I've navigated. I went through, so I've been, um, doing anti-racism work with schools for over 20 years. And I would say about eight years in, I got to a point where I was really angry at that same point. My son was 12 years old, a black young man and facing all of the things in his classroom that I was constantly fighting. I was so, so angry. Right. Um, this is just me and maybe people, this won't work for others, but I think of anger and I think we'll maybe chat about guilt too, is I question how productive the emotion is for me. Right. And if I find it to be unproductive, um, I actually choose to back burner it and pick a more productive, um, productive feeling. So maybe I'm feeling persistent instead of angry, or maybe I'm feeling creative instead of angry. Like I, literally choose a new emotion for myself when I see it coming up because for me at least I don't know how it helps me um to make the progress I want to make for some people anger is a productive emotion but for me it's not so that's how I've navigated anger I so want to have that ability to be able to take anger and to transition it in the way that you do into something that is more productive. Um, Jennifer, I know, and I'm, I'm, I actually want to come to, to Paul and Jane as well, but, but Jennifer, I know that this is also something that I've laid on you in past episodes when you've been on this show. Anger, what do we do? Yeah, and you know, I've said to you many times how valid all of our emotions are, and especially our anger during this time. If you're not angry... Uh, you're not paying attention as they say, right, right, right. You're not paying attention. I love, again, I love the way Marceline put it, that it is important to make sure that how we're feeling is, is useful in that moment. If our, if we get too angry and we can't do the things we know we need to do, then, you know, putting it on the back burner is completely a valid strategy to navigate it um, because we need to keep charging forward. So I, I, I definitely think anger is valid. It's just not always the most helpful. Um, and yeah. Um, something else that I know that uh, people are dealing with right now, and I see this going by in the chat, is people are feeling like nothing that they are doing right now is having any impact at all. Uh, there, there, is, there is so much that seems to be out of our control uh, as activists. And, you know, feelings of powerlessness can go a lot of different directions. Jana, you, you had some comments about this. I would, I'm curious to hear you expand on that. Yeah, so for me, um, within my role in, uh, at UMass Amherst, I'm an entry-level professional, right? So I'm not at the table making those super, you know, important leadership decisions um, around how our campus navigates and addresses instances of racial bias and harm on campus. 
what I do feel is important is that I work within my sphere of influence. And sometimes that feels like that's all I can do. Right. So while my position and the work that I do is not going to make UMass this beacon of hope for all students of color, for all marginalized students, what I can do is support the students I do work with to make UMass a little more safe for them when they're in my office or when they're in my space. Um, and so I, I don't think that's sufficient, but sometimes it's all I can do, right? Like yeah. if all I can do is support marginalized students and you know, assure them that my office is a space that they can come and my loyalty is not to UMass and my loyalty is not to the institution, but my loyalty is to them as students. If that's what I can do and that helps, um, then that's kind of my sphere of influence and that's what I do. Um, again, it doesn't make me feel good because that's not a threat to systemic and institutional racism, um, nor is it a threat to the way that oppression permeates my campus. Um, but I, I can be a resource to students um, who need a space uh, to like process instances of racial bias on campus, right? Like I try to identify myself as someone they can go to and try to highlight that my loyalty is to them as students, not to my institution. Um, so again, it's no threat to systemic injustice, but sometimes it feels like all I can do and sometimes I have to just be okay with that. I, I think that actually um, has a lot more power than maybe what it feels like. Cause I, I feel like if we could all just focus on our sphere of influence, that's really how the change is gonna happen. Most of us don't have power at a top level, but what we do have are the five or 10 or 20 people who we can actually create real change in their lives one-on-one. -on -one. You know, there's definitely theories and ideas about changing it, you know, in the big system, but there is a whole lot of influence we have one-on-one. -on -one. So I think that you being there uh, in the way that you are is actually having a lot of impact. Uh, maybe because I'm an individual therapist and I like to tell myself that for my job that I could just help this one client. But it, it is true that, you know, and I've read some articles about the um, personal relationships and how that is where some of the changes um, are happening in uh, people's political views and understanding, you know, what we just went through in the previous administration is really having that one on one connection with people. So I think there is a lot of power there, Jaina. Um, Paul, I, I just I moved to ask you for two reasons. One is I see that I see you nodding. I'm also wondering because you teach this sort of thing. Uh, if there's any, uh, if, first of all, if there are any tools that you can offer when people are feeling powerlessness, uh, and and if there's any anything in the pedagogy uh, that addresses this. I think the the most important tool is organizing, uh, and you know I don't think necessarily that kind of the rank and file of people. Um, Especially, I mean, I, I, there's a lot of different kinds of activism. What I'm most familiar with is social justice related stuff that um, there are a lot of people who feel like they're kind of alone uh, trying to, you know, fight stuff. And I just feel like we're not as organized as, you know, the anti-racist activists aren't as organized as the people who are trying to shut down conversations about race in schools and, and elsewhere. Um, do you have any thoughts about that? I don't mean to interrupt your, your train of thought there, but do you have any thoughts about why that is? I think part of it is that even among people who are doing, uh, for instance, anti-racism work, there's so much tension and conflict among communities who are doing 
social justice work that a lot of energy is spent on that. I think going back to something Marceline was talking about, there's a lot of energy trying to go in, going in to move the immovable. And so the energy isn't necessarily going into, uh, to, to um, you know, organizing in the same way. Although when I think of other movements I've been part of, like, um, uh, like labor movements and stuff, there can be much better organized. Uh, so I, I'm not, not sure exactly what all is going on there. Sure. But the other thing I wanted to say about this is I think one of the, this conversation we were just having is like one of the causes of burnout, I think. And, and Jana spoke to this a little bit. I think part of the challenge is people who are activists, especially in the, you know, anti-racist activists, uh, people in the kind of the social justice world are so tapped into the damage that's being done on a day-to-day -day basis and how huge it is and the big scope of it, which is what motivates a lot of people to become activists. And having a consciousness of something that most people, especially for anti-racist stuff, most white people don't have or choose not to have or just don't have a, you know, they think it's just about people getting along better. You know, uh, people who have that have such a sense of urgency that it, no matter what's happening, it feels too slow. It's moving too slow. It's moving too slow. And then what happens is, and uh, I think Gina kind of spoke to this too, is that people work themselves to exhaustion because the feeling is like, I, I'm a sellout if I just sit down and rest for a second. You know, I'm a sellout yeah. if I just go fill my water bottle and take the time to, to do that. So there's almost like this culture in some activist communities that I've been part of where it's like people are competing with each other to see who can make themselves sick first. Oh. From, uh, but, but it comes from this positive place of, I know what the implications are of systemic racism. I see it in my own community. And, and the, the, the pressure that that creates for people is, is huge. Uh, I think that's part of what uh, leads to burnout. You know, this segues perfectly into something that I know you want to talk about, Jaina, and that is, uh, uh, well, I'm going to get through it this way uh, because I want to talk about guilt. And there, there are several layers to this, and they all relate to what Paul is talking about. So people get burned out, and they withdraw, and then they often feel guilty uh, about withdrawing because for many, and many people who look like me, it is a privilege to be able to do so. And so either they don't get what they need from the, the time that they pull back or they just suck it up and they burn out even more. And either way, they're no good to, to anybody or any of the work that they're doing. Um, first of all, I'll ask you, Jane, if you have any thoughts on this cycle and how it can be broken and, and really just the way that this sort of thing kind of perpetuates in the, in, in the work that you, that you have done and, and the writing that you've done, the research that you've done. Yeah, thanks for that. My thoughts are all over the place. So this is going to be all over the place. Um, <laughs> I appreciated the question around like the the ability to disengage as a privilege um, because I think yes and no. Um, I think it really, really depends on the source of where your burnout is coming from. I think for folks who are engaged in social justice work coming from a place of privilege, for example, white activists engaged in racial justice work, kind of like Paul had said at the beginning of this panel, right? That burnout is coming from a very different place potentially uh, than students of color or people of color who are not only doing racial justice work, but also experiencing racism every day and the chronic 
impacts of cumulative racism, whether it's in higher education or whatever. Um, again, I focus mostly in higher ed. So I work at a predominantly white institution. Um, and so those are conversations I'm having with students of color all the time. Um, and so I think, right, like this culture that Paul is referring to, this culture of martyrdom, which like disincentivizes us from engaging in self-care, which I have my thoughts about self-care and I'll loop back to that. Um, but it dis like it discourages us from taking time to ourselves. I, so I spent a lot of my research really thinking about like how it is so important for us to be talking about burnout and to be having these conversations, right? Because the burnout of one activist, right? We are a, a movement of activists. And so we should be as a community of activists doing social justice work invested in each other's well-being, um, right? Because the, the deterioration of one activist is the deterioration of our movement. Um, and so to do this and to like work ourselves and run ourselves into the ground, right? We're not only hurting ourselves, we're hurting our movement, which is like counterintuitive to what we should be doing. Um, I think it's really important to like assess and like interrogate what the source of your burnout is coming from. Um, because I think that for some folks who are coming from a place of privilege, that burnout could be symptomatic of fragility or guilt um, or, oh my gosh, I've, you know, I read a book about racism and it was so overwhelming and I didn't know any of this was a thing. And now I'm just, it's too much for me. Um, as opposed to, you know, people who are engaging in identity-based activism, where again, not only are they doing the labor of actual activist work, but they are also experiencing that marginalization. They're experiencing racism, they're experiencing sexism, et cetera. And that is an additional layer that is feeding into the exhaustion. Um, and so I think, again, that question was really, it really started to get me thinking about the nuances of disengagement and is it a privilege? Um, and I'm not advocating that we don't like step back from the movement if we, if we need to take that time, because again, our well-being is ultimately the well-being of our movements, right? Because we are individuals who make up a movement. Um, and in order to have healthy movements, we need to be healthy people ourselves. Um, but I think it's really important, especially if you're coming from a place of privilege to ask yourself, how long am I going to give myself to be burned out? Right. Um, because if you're using that as an excuse not to do the work, then that's a problem. And that's coming from a different place. Um, that's not coming from I'm tired because I experiencing racism. It's I'm tired because I don't know, I benefit from it, um, to be blunt, um, or it doesn't necessarily impact me to the extent of the exhaustion I'm experiencing. Um, so I think it's important for, especially when we're coming from a place of privilege, engaging in this work, that we ask ourselves where the source of that burnout is coming from and interrogate that and ask ourselves when we're going to step back into the work. Um, so those are some of my thoughts. I, you know, um, Jennifer, I moved to ask you about a biggie here, which is dovetailing on things that Jaina is just talking about here, because so much of, of what I think she is 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 getting at in in terms of being able to find power within powerlessness um when you come up short it can give way to grief it can give way to despair it can give way to depression and I, i'm wondering how we should think about because it seems natural given that you are putting yourself essentially in the way of harm as an activist uh emotionally on so many levels how do we think about and maybe i'll just ask you as, as a, a psychotherapeutic professional how do we think about the grief that arises as a result of activism I, again, I just want to validate the idea that we have these extreme or uh, severe negative emotions that 
experiencing grief, anger, frustration, all of that is normal in this work. Um, how we navigate that is really the task at hand. I, I think there's some elements, you know, and I appreciate what Jaina said. And again, I'm gonna kind of speak as a white woman about uh, the overwhelm and the grief that you might have realizing how big the problem is of systemic racism and wanting to kind of, you know, avoid that because it's too big now. Um, really making sure that as white activists, we are poking our fellow white activists on that grief that they may have about that kind of an issue. I really like the way Jaina put that is to make sure we check uh, where these emotions are coming from. Is it true grief or is it grief because you have a privilege? So, and I, I would say that about any emotion, you know, when we experience an emotion, the strategy is what is the thought that's driving the emotion and then challenge the thought. Um, either challenge it or reinforce it, depending on uh, what makes sense. So I think that's really a good strategy one-on-one -on -one for us as activists, is making sure that we are focused on these emotions and what is, is driving it, and making sure that we stay focused on the task at hand and not our, uh, in, in a white woman's case, in, in the fragility that I experience um, or may experience. We can't, we can't let white people get away with that any longer. It's really, I, I think it's, it, it really is causing uh, a big part of the issue in the movement. You know, when Paul talked about the organization of the other side, um, what is happening is white people have become emboldened. And that's why they're more organized because they can say these things out loud on the street in front of powerful people and don't get checked. You know, they were emboldened. And, you know, I see it as a white woman. I know what was said behind closed doors and I watch it being said now and it's okay. And not that it was okay when it was behind closed doors, but now it's become like acceptable. And, and, and I've watched the microaggressions in our movement of white activists and the impact of that. And it's just not, and I think that's, you know, we, we definitely have, white people have to check other white activists or we're not gonna get organized the way we need to be organized. And, and when I say get white people organized, I'm also, as you know, I say this a lot, telling white people to just sit down. That's really how you should organize, <laughs> sit down and follow directions. Well, Paul, this goes directly to your work here. And I really want to bring you in because uh, you studied how activist groups can create burnout by the way that they interact. I'll ask you two things. Do we put too much pressure on each other without even meaning to? And as an extension of that, how do we not do that? How do we create healthy communities where members have a sense of belonging and, and people take care of each other? Uh, that's a that's a great question. I, I think part of it is that this kind of conversation should be seen as part of activism rather than something people have to look for outside of their activism. And I know because I did all these interview studies of people who have experienced activist burnout, um, out of about 100 people I interviewed, I think there were only two people who said that they got any support um, uh, for their burnout within their movement. Most of them had to like, walk away from their movement and get support and then try to find their way back in. And a lot of them don't go back in because they realize how unhealthy it is in there uh, in, in, some, in some cases. So, you know, I, I think it's, uh, I did find, you know, in these interviews that uh, one of the three biggest causes of burnout for activists 
are tensions and anxieties and infighting among activists, which was kind of astounding. Uh, and for a lot of activists, that was their major, that was the biggest cause of their burnout because it was the least expected. You know, they think I'm going to walk into this group and these are like-minded folks, uh, you know. Um, so, you know, so I think uh, developing a sort of a sense of community care, uh, developing a sense of uh, sort of uh, mutual support, uh, being very conscious of the ways identity stuff is operating within movements and organizations. Uh, another thing that was kind of scary in my interviews was about half of the women activists I interviewed had experienced sexual harassment or sexual assault from men within their movement, mm. uh, which is horrifying. That is a great way to kill a movement, uh, you know. Uh, so, you know, we have to be serious about that kind of thing. Uh, most of the activists of color I interviewed said they had experienced racism within their movements. So we have to be serious about that. We have to create a more general sense of community care so that uh, we're supporting one another and not playing out our exhaustion on each other, which I think is something that happens a lot. And I think it's really important for movement leaders and organizational leaders to, uh, you know, a lot of those people became leaders because there are people who are able to work 20 hours a day and then they expect everyone else to do that. And it's just not reasonable. It's not reasonable. So. Uh, you know. I, I wonder, and I will just ask, are, are there are many leaders out there who are watching tonight. Uh, does this square with your experience? Are, are you experiencing this this sort of uh, occasionally toxic dynamic? Is this something that you've had to face uh, within your groups? And, and if so, I would love to kind of hear how you have dealt with that. Um, something else that keeps coming up over and over and over again here in the questions and also in the questions that we received ahead of time was uh, overwhelm. Um, there are just so many issues right now. This is a question from Tom. Uh, he says, you know, how do we determine what is best to work on? I think being overwhelmed is a major cause of burnout. We are drinking from a fire hose again. Isn't that the truth? Uh, how do we prioritize? Marceline, do you have any thoughts here? I do. I have some thoughts on on that and then I wanted to circle back to something that Jaina um, well and everyone kind of addressed but in terms of overwhelm some of the things I try to do is um, do some really good self-reflection about where is the best place to spend my energy what am I most passionate about what topics am I most passionate about what are my skills so if my skills are not organizing and my skills are in writing then I'm, I'm going to do writing um, what's inside my sphere of influence uh, which has been brought up. But then another big thing is knowing how to say no to things that don't advance your um, justice agenda. So I may be thinking I'm overwhelmed with my justice work when actually that's one thing on a plate that also includes maybe my PTA work, my neighborhood help out work, my all these other things. And maybe I need to say no to those things so that I don't feel as overwhelmed with my justice work, right? I have to make room for it if it's important to me. So to me, it is about knowing myself and what gives me energy and spending as much of my energy there um, as opposed to all over the place. I wanted to circle back to something and it's, a, it's like an emerging thought for me, but 
it has to do with resources in the way that I see a lot of activists individually and activist organizations think about resources as if the more we can do with fewer resources that proves our, our, our medal, right? Like I'm, you know, doing all this with volunteers. We shouldn't pay people to show up or we shouldn't have nice spaces or buildings. Like this, there's this sometimes this internal idea that um, being poorly resourced is an example of our commitment to our activism. But when you look at, let's say corporations, they, they know they have to pay for what they want to get done. Right. So what is our willingness to um, to pay people to do the work, to support people, to appreciate them and not just expect everyone to be finding this extra pot of free time? I think it's something that that should be worked on also in alignment with other types of organizing. How are we going to resource this and compensate people for their time um, for this work? Um, and not be looking for volunteers and all of that all of the time. Just something to consider um, when we think about burnout, that some of it I feel like we impose on ourselves with this concept of do more with less. Well, so this this is a question from Tracy that uh, kind of dovetails on that, and this is for you, Paul. Uh, what do you do when you want to step away, but you can't find volunteers to take your place on a board? The last thing you want is for the nonprofit to suffer because you're burned out, but leaving can mean that they don't have the legally required number of board members. Uh, I know that you study uh, these, these sorts of, of structures within nonprofits. What would you say to them? Well, I think best case scenario is creating a culture within the institution that people aren't burning out. So I think we have to get on that. Uh, you know, we have to change whatever is creating, you know, uh, and again, make addressing the issue of burnout part of the organization's work. So the support is there and people don't have to go outside our uh, organizations or movements to, to get it. I, I think that's I think at least long-term, that's the, that's the best case scenario. I think part of the challenge we're up against though is for some people, if they don't literally just step away and take a break, you know, um, what uh, at least the research suggests about this is they're likely uh, eventually to become so damaged uh, physically, emotionally, psychologically that they cannot come back that they are going to be lost from movements for good. Uh, one study showed that that happens to about 45% of activists eventually, that it just becomes yeah. so overwhelming. People who had once committed their lives to a cause, it just becomes so much that they leave and they can't come back for the good of their own you know, uh, health. Um, and, and again, in a way that, that's even sort of a privileged sort of thing, because some people are going to be in it, even if they're not choosing to be in it uh, because of uh, who they are. So, you know, I want to take the long view. Let's change the culture of movements and movement organizations so that this is part of the, the conversation, that part of the activist work is this work, uh, so, so that we're not dealing with the fallout of it on the other end, which is we have to replace someone on a board. I mean, I think if that's what we're defining as the problem, we're too far into the problem yeah. uh, to, uh, to make a difference. So, you know, you were talking about people who spend uh, long years uh, committed to activism. Um, a, a dear friend of mine, Paula, 
asks, and she is somebody who has spent uh, the vast majority of her adult life in activism. She asks about how COVID is impacting all of this. I would love to get all of your thoughts on this. She says, are we suffering from activist fatigue or the fatigue and frustration of COVID restricting us from walking door to door to engage in authentic conversations about our communities and our government? Um, uh, Jennifer, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I just think from uh, my personal experience with the last election, I think it really made uh, things in, uh, a lot more challenging from that personal level. I think a lot of the activists I work with really uh, our favorite thing was going door to door and talking to people. And so it was a little depressing to not be able to do those things. And as much as you think you can reach more people through social media or phone calls or whatever, it just doesn't feel the same when you can't be in the community. So I think it's been hard. And then frankly, the fact that COVID has gone on for so long. Um, and again, here in Florida, I think we all know why, but yeah. I think that is really um, part of the issue too, is that it just keeps going on and on. And, and then and that builds the anger because we know why it's continuing. So I think that's been, you know, and, and will be a con continued challenge. Gina, I'm wondering if you could speak to how COVID is impacting student activism. Yeah, well, for one, students are just exhausted, um, right? Like they're trying to navigate remote learning, many of which didn't sign up for remote learning. We have students back on campus now, um, but we still have masking restrictions. Students are experiencing anxiety around potentially closing again. Um, 15 months ago, UMass sent all of our students, 14,000 residential students home in the middle of the semester because of COVID. So I think our students are tired um, and they're tired of remote learning. And especially last summer, right, we were seeing continued violence on black bodies in particular at the hands of law enforcement. So that combined, right, like with just the grief of COVID while also watching the virality of black bodies being executed by law enforcement, right? Like that was taking a significant toll, right? We had all of the, um, we had the Asian hate last semester. Um, we had the, the, the riots at the at the Capitol, right? So like navigating just like the grief of COVID, grieving your student experience while also watching the world literally fall apart as it has been, right? So that none of this is new. Um, like none of these things are new. Um, but I think like students being at home with no sense of community on campus, uh, no ability to go see um, their friends, no ability to be in classes in person, right? They're watching the news and it's, horrible right like they're literally just sitting in their rooms at home watching the world fall apart with no sense of community because we're all in isolation um so i think our students were really struggling on multiple ends um i know they're excited to be back on campus but it still doesn't look the way that we would like it to in a traditional year um, but i'm interested to see what kind of engagement uh students are going to be picking up after 15 months of being off campus uh so it's going to be an interesting semester for student activists on campus here at umass you have enumerated so many things that I actually hesitated to list at the very beginning of our discussion because I didn't want to bum people out any further. I'm not saying that you did, but I think it's really important for us to just think about kind of the, the perfect storm of everything that is happening right now. We have the pandemic. We have, uh, uh, you know, climate change. We, we have so, so many things that are, that, that are, that are uh, uh, just, just coming together right now that how could we not feel overwhelmed? How could we not feel burned out? How could we not feel everything that we're feeling right now? 
Um, one other question we got about was was news. And I know that, again, Jennifer, this is something that you and I have discussed in the past. How to deal with a constant negative news cycle. As activists, I think we feel an obligation to kind of stay on top of the news, uh, but it can really take a toll. Marceline, do you have any thoughts on, like, what's the right balance uh, for, for news consumption for activists? Uh, that's a that's a great question. I don't know that I have um, strongly formulated, I you know, like suggestions on that. I try to limit it to, I try to limit myself to knowing what's going on, but not like getting caught up in the sensationalization of it. Um, I don't want to be out of the know, but I also don't want to get like sucked down this rabbit hole that the news has now become extremely skilled at doing, right? Um, So that's important. The other thing that I think is important for me is I like talking to people who think differently than I do. Because the news has become so like um, algorithm <laughs> towards certain ideas that um, I might be missing out on perspectives as well. And so that just helps me stay more balanced in like the ideas that I'm processing. If I stay on my track, I'm just going to get all the sensationalization of that. And it's gonna, it's designed to whip me up. I, there's been a lot of um, the chatter in the uh, comments in the chat about QAnon, et cetera. This stuff is becoming a science, how to whip people up. And you have to break yourself out of your lane, whatever that is. Well, I just want to add to that's please. just such a really good way to put that because again, um, kind of just staying on that surface and making sure you know what you need to know and not engaging on that deeper level. It's not that you don't want to know the facts, but it's, I just need to know what I need to know and not getting, letting it get you all whipped up because again, that is the strategy. That's how we got here is through that um, subliminal messaging and gaslighting. All of those strategies are built into how the news is presented and how information is presented. So, And it has a real toll as well. And yeah. I, we're, we're coming up right against the hour here, but I actually, this is something also that I wanted you to, uh, to speak about Jennifer, because you, you speak about it um, quite bluntly. Um, we know that there are relationships and families that are just torn apart by uh, political divisions, by disinformation, through social media, through Fox News. You believe in just walking away, right, from those relationships in a healthy way. I do. I do. We've talked before about the importance of those boundaries from a psychological well-being perspective. And um, there is a concept called self-perceptual injuries. When you are constantly exposed to people that challenge your very being, um, that is not okay for you to stay in those relationships. Um, So making sure that you have very clear boundaries about that. Um, And I know that's hard. I know, you know, again, I can talk it all I want. Um, but it is very, very important to hold on to who we are and these issues that have been put in our face, um, either for decades because it's our existence, um, or because we're newly informed. Um, these are really serious issues about what is happening in the world and to the community, to our communities. And so it is important to make sure our boundaries are clear. I also say that because we need to stay in the fight. And if we, if our circles are not safe, then how can we continue to fight the fight um, in our spheres of influence and, you know, on a larger scale? So making sure that we're focused on being safe, uh, then our sense of self is safe. Marceline, did I see you, your hand go up? I just want to share a, a thought before we close. And I have um, Stacey Abrams and John Lewis behind me. 
And what I want to share is vote, vote and, um, and help others to vote is one of the most efficient ways that we can be activists. Um, and I'm sure I'm, pre you know, speaking to the choir, I'm sure all of you vote. So the other thing I would say is vote your conscience, not your privilege. Um, and um, we're in Georgia, I'm in Georgia. We love to follow behind Florida and Texas and voting matters, like really, really matters. So if, we're, if you're tired, at least vote and help other people vote. So I just want to I, I appreciate that. that I appreciate that so much. I, you know, I would love to just take a couple of moments before we go here to have each of you summarize. We, we've covered so much ground tonight, and I, I want to thank you so much uh, to just uh, give maybe like uh, maybe your top two or three tools for addressing and preventing burnout. Um, Paul, can we start with you? Uh, you know, I, I again will go back to the idea of community care. Uh, the one source of burnout we can most easily control among people who are you know like-minded and the kinds of issues that we fight for is making sure that the conditions within our own movements and organizations are not contributing to uh, people's burnout so make this part of the uh, everyday conversation i think it's easy to go to self-care but remember i said over half of the women we interviewed have been sexually harassed or assaulted by men in their movements. There is no kind of self-care that can fix that. The only thing that can fix that is transforming whatever it is about the culture of the movement or organization that lets that happen. So uh, community care first, how do we create uh, um, cultures within uh, our activism that are conducive to uh, people being able to stick around? Community care, for sure. Uh, Gina, how about you next? Uh, just a, a few tools for addressing and preventing burnout. Yeah, I can't emphasize enough, like shifting away from that, like very capitalist consumerist notion of self-care and investing in your community, um, right? That community being what sustains you and can help you all sustain each other, right? So like creating those relationships, sustaining those relationships is incredibly important. Um, having that community, being able to tap into each other when you're at your capacity, um, being able to ask someone else, um, do you have the capacity to take this on because I'm not in a space right now, right? Those authentic relationships, that communication, that dialogue um, is really, really important, I think. And I think it's, again, important to also like demystify this concept of burnout as like this taboo subject. We need to talk about it. We need to recognize that it's it's more than just the deterioration of one activist, right? If we're all burning out, right, that is our movement. Our movement is not this like theoretical you know, general like umbrella term, right? Our movement is individual human beings who are navigating the exhaustion of activism, the exhaustion of living in this world, living in this country, to be honest, um, and the exhaustion of potentially doing activist work that is intrinsically tied to their marginalized identity. So it is so important for us to be talking about this, for, to make space for grieving, to make space for exhaustion, um, and to have the conversation so that we can tap into that community care so that we can tap on each other when we are at our capacity um, rather than walking away from our movements feeling confident in our in our community um, that we can step away for a little bit um, and then come back to that work i think that's so important to just talk about it and name it 
I, I really like that. And I, I will say that one of the things I, I can attest to this uh, that I think Indivisible does quite well is community. Um, I can see so many faces on the call here tonight who, yes, I see you smiling, Louise. You're one of the people I was thinking of uh, who I can rely on. And we know that we can rely on each other and, and Kat, of course, and, and so many others. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think we all do try to take that, that advice to heart. Uh, Marceline, some tools for addressing uh, burnout? Sure. First of all, I want to say I very much agree with community. So I'm just going to offer something that's different, but not in replace of that. Um, get to know yourself very well. Sit down with yourself. Know what your values are. Know what your passions are. Know what your skills are. Um, know who your people are. Um, spend some time really learning yourself so that you're using your energy in the ways that are um, more insatiable. What are those things that you can do all night and you look up and the clock just flew by? Know yourself in that way and use that energy in your work as opposed to fighting against um, who you are naturally as a person is one suggestion I would throw out there. Can I just ask you another because I know that you're a yoga instructor and I like yoga. Any <laughs> any thoughts on that? I'm, well, I, I yoga has been um, a lifesaver for me. Um, but I feel like everyone should have a rejuvenation habit. That's why I call it a rejuvenation practice. And it might not be yoga. Also, um, when you teach yoga, you teach that everything is yoga, right? So like if I'm walking through the forest, being present in my walk, feeling my feet on the ground, that's also yoga. So that's why I don't um, front stage it as much. But I do think it's important to have back to knowing yourself, what rejuvenates you, what um, fills your battery? Are you an introvert? Do you need to be in nature? That's all, in my opinion, that's all yoga. And um, so what is your rejuvenation habit or practice, I think is really important too. Yep. Know thyself and integrative, integrative practice. Mm -hmm. uh, Jennifer, yeah. my friend, you get the final word tonight. Yeah, mine kind of dovetails uh, right along with what Marcelina is saying. I practice a strategy, a Buddhist strategy called doorway mindfulness. And it doesn't have to be a literal doorway, but as you move from one space to another, that you recenter yourself. So knowing who you are uh, uh, kind of helps here, meaning as you're going from home to a march and a march to back home or into a meeting and out of a meeting, that with each transition, you practice some breathing, some mindfulness, some grounding, and some centering thoughts so that you can literally be present in that space. When you're fighting for others, um, you're fighting for who you are versus fighting for others, those kinds of things you need to be able to recenter yourself. So using those breathing and mindfulness strategies to move from one place to another. Oh, and it's so, so hard because I, I believe it was, uh, I, I think it was Jaina who, who was talking earlier about how you're, you're living in this idealized place that you want to get to. You're impatient. You want to get there. Uh, that's very difficult for us activists. So perfect advice, I think, to, to end on tonight. Um, so uh, Paul Gorski, Marceline DeBose, Jaina Tavares, and Jennifer Ferris-Young, we thank you so much for joining us uh, tonight and, uh, and spending your hour with us. I know that it is after 11 your time, so we, we appreciate you staying up late, and, and thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much to all of you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you to everyone for joining us for this special event. The producer of the Town Hall series is Kat Pipkin. The website is indivisiblepodcast.org and the email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to Lori Colwell, and as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.